and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne, I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. This week, I'm talking to Adam Carnage about his work, motivations, along with a range of other topics I hope you'll find interesting. Venturing to remote locations, Adam strives to inspire a diverse following to explore the art of photography, adventure and the human condition. Drawing on his philosophical approach to life, Adam's photography goes beyond technique or literal representation of a scene to tell a story that resonates and inspires. For some years, photography, while still an important part of his life, remained as a hobby. In 2005, Adam joined the police, moving to London and starting his career on the beat in the Metropolitan Force. It was during these eventful and challenging years that Adam developed a philosophy of life which feeds into everything he does today, both as a person and a photographer. After a number of years of budget cuts and growing disenchantment with the direction policing in Britain was taking, he began to contemplate the possibility of a change of career, and so in 2014 he decided to give up his role as a sergeant and move to West Yorkshire in pursuit of a more affordable lifestyle with greater and easy access to the countryside, which he felt was important both for his future plans and for his own well-being and that of his young family. During the next four years, he set about building up his photography into a business that was viable enough to support his family. A large part of the early success of his business was building up his YouTube channel, First Man Photography, to the point where he was reaching tens of thousands of people every week with his videos. These videos started off as tutorials, but very quickly developed into a sharing of his experience, his love of the outdoors and landscape photography, and in fostering that love in other people. As of March 2022, the First Man Photography YouTube channel has almost 150,000 subscribers, over 250,000 views a month, and 1.5 million minutes watched per month. What sets Adam apart is the philosophy on life and mental well-being that he weaves into much of his commentary and his work. He's a storyteller, crafting his journeys through the landscape into meaningful and fulfilling experiences which he shares with others through both his finished artworks and his films. Above all else, Adam's passion and enthusiasm for photography is infectious, and he works tirelessly to encourage a love of the landscape and nature in others. His skill set is wide and covers a broad spectrum, but at the core of everything he does is the desire to tell stories, lift up those around him, take on challenges, and inspire a diverse following to explore the art of photography, adventure, and the human condition. We discuss how his career and motivations have developed, his passion for seeking out the stories behind his work, the work he has done to educate himself about how the economy and energy sector works, and how that relates to the current trend around NFTs, and why he won't sell his work as NFTs, along with a lot more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi Adam, welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Hello, very, very good, thank you. Thanks for um, reaching out and inviting me onto your excellent podcast. That's, that's always very much appreciated to have my say about a few things that we might end up talking about today. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, um, great to have you on and uh, you know, I've been watching your vlogs for, for some time and that's something that we, we will touch on and I've got a couple of other topics I think we uh, 
we probably need to to touch on you know as we go through the the, the process sure you know I, I guess let's start with what got you started in photography you know um, people that have watched your vlog will obviously know a little bit about your history but you know I, I guess there, there there may be some people out there that haven't haven't picked up YouTube yet and haven't looked at you um, so what's the uh, Adam Carnes story yeah I mean what so I think probably my love of landscape photography came just from spending the vast majority of my childhood outside uh, i was very fortunate where i grew up in a small town in northern england which was right on the border of a national park so in the t in, in this particular town where i grew up you could kind of look one way to the hills turn around and off a sort of eight miles or so the other way you'd have the sea and the north york and the north yorkshire coast so i was very fortunate with where i grew up and um it was before obviously before the days i'm old enough to have lived before the internet <laughs> so my <laughs> yeah my weekends and evenings were kind of spent playing with other kids on the street and we rode bikes we went up into the woods we played football uh and it was just, I just spent a lot of that time outside. And then photography came into it because my dad was into a bit of photography. Uh, he also worked for a company that did some promotional stuff with schools uh, around photography and other things. But part of that, he often had a mobile dark room that was in the back of a van that he used to go around to schools with sometimes and develop film with kids. So having that opportunity to do that kind of got me into the whole kind of playing with chemicals and messing about with film and taking photos. Uh, and then it's up, that probably culminated when I, in, when I was 16 and I went to the US with my friend after we'd done our exams and we explored around Yosemite and uh, Death Valley and various other parts of California and Arizona and stuff. And that was a great trip and whilst driving around Yosemite I bought this kind of disposable panoramic camera from Kodak produced these amazing kind of I don't know like 20 20 centimeter wide images about they were really cool but I bought that it had, I had 20 I think it had 20 shots in it and took that into Yosemite and I was with my friend's uh, mum and aunties and every now and again, I'd get them to stop the car so I could jump out and take an image of a scene that I enjoyed. And after a while, they were getting annoyed with it. And oh, we're stopping again. You're like, I think we've got, and they were like, I think we've got Ansel Adams in the back here. And I'd never heard of Ansel Adams before at that point. Uh, and that was like, that turns out to have been a really nice moment because that then led me to looking into Ansel Adams and what he did in Yosemite. Uh, so it was just a sort of a really nice moment and then I've still got some of those images that I took on that trip and I'm still really pleased with them as well but then after that I kind of got into my late teens and other things sort of took over as you become an adult and I probably drunk too drunk a generation of people that drunk too much um got interested in playing sport more sports and 
chasing around after girls and stuff and that kind of thing. So, and then I went to university and photography just went by the wayside for a while. And then I joined the police. And um, after not long after I joined the police, maybe a little bit before, I can't quite remember the timing, but I got back into photography at about the same time as a hobby, like most people do. And then, yeah, just kind of, I've been doing it solidly ever since. When I was when I when I was a cop, it, that was still as a hobby, and then it sort of moulded into what is now my my career. So yeah, that's uh, in a nutshell. That's <laughs> that's the sort of journey my photography took and the the, the backstory. Fair enough. So talk us through how you made the decision to make it a career and and go full time. Was it something that you'd always wanted to to do in the back of your mind, or was it something that was more of no, this. definitely, definitely not. Like when I when I joined the police, I'd, I'd always wanted to do some something that tested me. I I felt like, I mean, my parents split up when I was younger, which wasn't the easiest thing to deal with. But overall, my my childhood was really nice. Like it was, at, at times, it felt almost easy. Like I mm. had good friends, I had good parents, even though they weren't together. It brought some challenges, but. Like I said, I grew up in a fairly idyllic place. And I knew there was more out there in the world. There was some stuff going on. So I wanted to join the armed forces initially. Um, but because I have asthma, they wouldn't take me at that stage. So yep. I, I pitched for the next best thing and joined the police. And then I thought, well, I don't just want to join the police where I live. I want to travel down to London and get the sort of the most difficult thing that the police has to offer in the UK. Yeah, sure. So, and then, I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I never, I thought, as did everybody, that that would be a career for life. Like you did, you did 30 years. So I joined when I was like 24 or something. I'd have been 54 when I retired with a load of life left. And I thought, well, at that point, I might do something around with photography. But times changed the the government pulled the rug out from underneath cops by changing the pension um changing the deal and then obviously 2008 hit with a financial crash that then fed into the public sector in the UK probably about a year later and you just sort of started to see yourself getting worse off and worse off opportunities were just disappearing as well yeah, and sure. then and then the, the final straw i think was they didn't really want people that thought for themselves. They wanted uh, robots, basically, that would do policing by flowchart. And that isn't how policing should work. It should be... Yeah, yeah. It should be people who are operating independently. They have their own discretion to make their own decisions. And it's through that that you have people from the community policing the community. That's the whole ethos of the police and that was starting to be eroded and i think ever since then actually we've seen that continue to get eroded to the point where sometimes you see the police as some people see the police as like a militant arm of government mm. and that's that isn't what the police should be it yeah, should be what the not not what they're meant for yeah yeah it should be the the people policing the people and that's not always what it is so i became a bit disillusioned with the way things were going um, the, I felt like 
the wrong people were getting promoted. The people who were getting promoted were like people that only cared about themselves. They had the wrong thing. They weren't doing the right thing. Sometimes even they were doing illegal things. Mm. Um, so I just kind of got sick of it and decided probably four years prior to leaving, four or five years that I wanted to leave. So I'd already started doing a couple of weddings and things with my yep. photography and just started to slowly build it up. And then probably three years out from leaving, I started the YouTube channel. So I transferred back up north. We had our second child. And almost to the day that my second child was born, I started my YouTube channel. Because I, I wasn't getting any sleep anyway from having this. She, did, <laughs> she slept like three hours a night for about for about the first year and a bit. So I wasn't getting any sleep anyway. So I thought, well, I might as well do a day at work, come home, film a video, and then go to bed for three hours. <laughs> and I, I lived my life like that pretty much for a year. And I was working wow. like 16, 17 hours a day, maybe a bit more, to get this YouTube channel up and running. Yeah, yeah. That's not something anyone can sustain, but... I don't regret doing it because it, it created a foundation for what I now have, which then th sort of three years later allowed me to sort of to leave the police and um, on good terms. Like I don't, I, th th there was no real yeah, bitterness, yeah. Uh, particularly of any individuals um, uh, and pursue, pursue this dream really. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm now like, four years down the line i think i think i left four years i think i left the police four years ago it's soon with coronavirus and stuff we kind of two years have just disappeared out of memory haven't they so it's, yeah uh, I've, I've got no idea what day it is today and, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to tell what year it is but uh yeah no i know i know exactly what you mean so in in talking about uh starting the vlogging how did you make that decision to what what was it that attracted you to doing that and sort of sharing your your experience to 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 the world i mean to be honest like when i when i first started making videos it was tutorials i'd watched uh mm -hmm. people like i don't know jared poland in the us and that couple i can't remember their names uh guy with gray hair yeah, I know, I know who you, know, you mean, you know but I, mean. I can't think of their name. Either. So some of those older, sort of, some of those sort of first stage YouTube channels that did photography, and I thought, well, I quite like that, but there's nothing in, there's no one in the UK doing doing that. Sure. And it was at the same time I was kind of doing wedding photography and find, getting a lot of friction from existing photographers who didn't want you there. Essentially, they didn't like the competition, and there was a lot of bitterness and rivalry and. They weren't willing to help. So that kind of, that new wave of people who watched YouTube and were online, I felt like I could share some stuff that I'd learned with them, particularly around the technical stuff, like yeah. at that point, because that's kind of, it was those tutorials, I think, at that time that people were looking for. And especially from a, a kind of non-American voice, perhaps. Yeah. So that was the kind of initial thing for the channel was doing tutorials and the, the water drop stuff that I did 
around water drop photography really took off and that sort of bolstered my channel for quite a long time but then I got into like watching vlogs and when vlogging became a thing and like people like Casey Neistat started mm-hmm. doing vlogging I thought oh, that's that's cool I like his style yeah uh I could have a go at that but out in the landscape doing landscape photography because that's been that was always my first love with photography and I thought oh yeah that sounds good so I, I went out and did I went to Yorkshire I didn't want it to look like the Casey Neistat film do you know what I mean so I, yeah, I've, yeah. I've tried to put my own style on it and obviously my personality as well so I went out did a video talked about my day was really happy with the video and then posted it did pretty well like it was it got I can't remember the exact, exact views but like over a thousand views I think nice. and then people started commenting and I was like and they were like Adam that was that was really good but where are the images <laughs> yeah and and landscape photography vlogs weren't a thing at the point so at that point so I'd I'd done the whole video talked about the shot I was doing and because of the schedule and my editing and I was still working at that point as well I hadn't had time to edit the the images and add them in add them into the video so it just didn't cross my mind to include the images because I was just making a story of my day but then people were like where are the images I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, putting the images after what I've just talked about. Definitely, definitely. So so on the second one, that's what I did, and that's kind of how it kind of developed. And then a little while after that, I think I'd done about seven or eight vlogs, and then someone commented saying, "Um, have you come across a guy called Thomas Heaton? Mm -hmm. Because, Because he's doing something similar to what you're doing, and I hadn't done at that point, and then... Yeah, checked him out and saw, yeah, that he was doing something really similar, uh, but had kind of 10 times more subscribers than I've got. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's really cool. Like, I really like what he's doing. And um, to this day, he sort of is one of the few that I still pay any attention to. So Yeah, sure, sure. Because I, I think he's, he, like unlike some people, I think he's kind of, hopefully like hopefully like me has maintained that kind of authenticity all all the way through yeah Um, yeah. which i think which i think when when you're looking at these videos and anything and i've talked about this in some of my sort of more monologue type videos recently is i think that authenticity is what counts that's what that's what people really connect with absolutely particularly over these last few years with uh with things going on in the world outside of our control i think people have really taken comfort in authentic people and podcasts and you longer form youtube videos and stuff mm, definitely yeah the, the, I, I think in the past couple of years and i know you comment about uh having no vi- um visuals you know my my podcasts i don't do visuals i don't uh i, I I record the video because I've been doing these uh, all on Zoom, but I don't. Yeah. I don't put that up. Uh, the only right. images that you'll see are actually the promo videos that I do for each episode, yeah. um, and a uh, you know a, a profile shot of the of the artist who I'm talking to. So, but it, you know, I, I think you're quite right about the the authenticity thing. You know, it, it's really important that people, you know, engage with you as you as opposed to you as a character which you might be portraying and i i I get what you mean with some of the other vloggers and i'm not 
you know, necessarily, you know, pointing fingers at anyone here no, no. In, in particular, but, uh, you know, the, the, there's definitely some which, you know, you kind of look at and go, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but maybe no, I, maybe I'm, you're not I'm, quite as authentic, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not passing judgment because it's actually really difficult to be authentic, particularly as you go on camera because I remember when I first started practicing with my video setup for one of my first tutorials when I was still living in southern England I'd set up the camera thought about the lighting thought about all the sort of photography videography side of things and then I switched the camera on that little red light came on and I thought oh shit I've got to I've got to say something now and that kind of had almost slipped my mind that you've got to actually say something absolutely yeah so so it's it's really really tempting to create this kind of presentation personality. Do you know what I mean? Like, because you've spent your life watching TV and you kind of feel like you've got to turn it up to 11. Absolutely, and, yeah. But, but in, a way, in a way, that's true because you don't... And I think this is where some other smaller vloggers struggle sometimes is that they don't have the confidence in what they're saying. Do you know, and, and that becomes that doesn't become authentic. I think what they they're saying what they believe. Sure. But it doesn't come across authentically because there's no confidence in it. And I think that's that's what you need a little bit on screen. Because if you're if you're constantly apologizing for what you're saying. Yeah. Or or, say, or putting yourself down, not being trying to be self-effacing but really just sort of putting yourself down constantly is an excuse for something you you might accidentally say that you don't mean yeah i think that that's lacking authenticity but that's where it's that's where it's difficult so i think and you you kind of certainly when i look back at my old videos that's what i'm like Uh, it's kind of i'm almost like apologetic with what i'm saying because i'm a bit scared of what people might think of me yeah yeah and I look back at those now and I'm like, oh, hello, this is Adam and welcome to First Man Photography. But then I went too far the other way and went, hi, I'm Adam. And well, and, it, so it, 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 and then I think eventually I kind of slotted into this presentation style that, that mostly matches my own normal personality. I, like... I, I think it's really uh, what what you were saying. It, it is really about that experience, and you know, you, you you dial things up and down a little bit, and you you finally hit that level where you go, okay, well, this is this is me. This is this is comfortable. I'm yeah. confident. I know what I'm doing. I know that what I'm going to be saying. You know, well, you know, there's always going to be somebody that will you know s- sling a brick bat at you, but you know, yeah. I think it's the same for everybody though. Like, I think a, a way to imagine it is that you don't talk and communicate the same with no. your mate down with your mate down the pub than you do if you were talking in a meeting at work. Absolutely. Or presenting something at work. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you if you even if you're standing up in front of a room of five people to talk, you're still going to start. You kind of want to grow into that, don't you? And, Definitely. Uh, then, then if it's like it's that's different to how me and you are just having a chat now. It's not. So I think the but that remains authentic. That's not being false. It's just understanding how you are presenting and who you are presenting to. Like it's say for example when I'm doing a vlog and I'm 
I've got a really nice sunset. If I didn't have the camera there, I wouldn't be shouting and screaming and excited. Do you know what I mean? Like that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be feeling I'd be feeling it inside. Yeah. But I'm not going to be going, whoa, yes, this is amazing. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. this sunset has happened. But when I'm doing the video, I let some of that out. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm so happy. Look how beautiful it is. Yeah. This is making me feel so good. And it's just verbalizing those feelings that a lot of landscape photographers have in those moments. But if there was no camera there, I wouldn't, I'd be stood there. I'd just be like, do you know what I mean? Like arms folded. <laughs> Watching it, yeah. Screaming yeah, exactly. on the inside going, that looks fantastic. You know? Exactly. I wish someone was here with me. Like, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm constantly uh, knee-deep in, uh, in in water doing seascapes at sunrise thinking exactly the same thing, you know. Yeah. Screaming on the inside going, yes, this is this is fantastic. But, uh, you know, on, on, on the outside, there's not much sound and not much expression on my face either, yeah. Exactly, yeah, and that's that's totally natural, isn't it? Yeah. So when you know, one one of the things that I've noticed in particular, and not not just your channel, but everything on YouTube now, seems to have to have that clickbait title. What where, where, where do you stand on that? And you know, is that is that just because of the nature of the beast or is it something that you know i guess you've just got to fall into line with because that's yeah, what so gets you your clicks you know i talked about this on a recent video and i've kind of come to the acceptance that content is no longer king it used to be even going back like three two or three years ago content was king if you had good content people would find it and click it yep but i i dread to think how many new youtube channels have popped up in that time millions probably so the the competition from all these young people joining youtube more older people getting into youtube it's just the the supply of content is just erupting and it's probably still going exponential in growth mm. so get getting that initial attention has never been more important. And the literally on YouTube, the only thing that does that is your title and thumbnail. So I've kind of come to the acceptance that the title and thumbnail are absolutely vital. Unless you already have an enormous audience and you're happy to coast along. So I could I could probably do at the stage I'm at, I could probably do any title I wanted and any old thumbnail. And I'd get 5,000 views, probably. Yeah. But 5,000 views is not, like, that's not, YouTube, continuing to do YouTube is not viable for me if I only get 5,000 views. So I've come to the acceptance that I need to work a lot, lot harder on my thumbnails and titles. And there are some clickbaity titles out there. Some are pretty annoying. But I've kind of decided that I'm going to work harder on my thumbnails and make a thumbnail and title that sparks a curiosity or tells a story just within the title. And sometimes that will be a little bit clickbaity. But I've decided that I'm going to hide, try and hide quality content inside of a slightly clickbaity title. 
and if people don't like it then get off youtube do you know what i mean like it's that that's the na- that's the nature of the beast um do, do do we do is do we love everything about youtube absolutely not well it's like all social media you know the, the, yeah. if you're not there you're not going to get seen but exactly you know that does come with you know some of the penalties that you've got to pay which are you know you got to you got to play the game their way because otherwise yeah. again you really won't be seen i mean it causes it does cause a lot of upset like it's it do, playing the youtube game is like playing a game where you don't know the rules and and you don't know how to win so yeah. like so it's just a case of kind of trying to move things around authentically to get the most views you can to make particularly if you're doing it full time to try and or if you have a an or if you're aspiring to do it full time to try and maintain some growth and to maintain a level of income that makes it viable to still do because it takes a long time like youtube youtube certainly in the past has not been the biggest part of my income but it's by far the biggest drain on my time absolutely yeah i can imagine with the i mean i've i've done a little bit of video but i you know i'm, I'm not a vlogger not a not a youtuber by any stretch of the imagination but you know the time that I imagine you must spend just on a shoot, walking backwards and forwards, picking up and setting up, you know, your your, your vlogging camera, uh, getting that in the right position, making sure you've got the shot, walking yeah. walking through for your B roll, doing whatever it is that you've got to do. Then when you you're actually recording on on a location where you where you set up, and then getting that yeah. back and editing all of that and putting it together. Uh, you know, uh, I, I honestly not not sure how how it could be, I guess, sustainable for, you know, as as I say, you got to kind of got to be there, but you know, what what kind of drain on your time is that? How how much how many hours a week, I guess, would you would you spend yeah, on many, your on your weekly videos? I think if I if I was if I did a vlog, it's like a day out in the field shooting half a day probably editing the photos and organizing all the raw footage into a place where I can then edit it and then it's a day editing full day usually sometimes a little bit more and then since I've started working harder on the thumbnails and titles and stuff publishing it probably takes half a day as well if you include creating the thumbnail and title and all that um so yeah what's that like three three full days probably and that's not short that's not short days either that's no i'm uh, i I don't imagine they're a standard eight hour day yeah sort of 12 12 hours probably i mean i've tried i've tried over the years to kind of um have a more balanced work life going on yeah yeah um and try and particularly with after the pandemic and stuff trying to be there for the kids and because my kids are my my children are nine and seven so it's like it's a stage of their life where i I don't want to miss you know what i mean like so absolutely that's that's um that's why i don't travel as much as some other people might and um yeah and that is that that's kind of 
made me more interested in talking about some of the more human trait aspects and the sort of human element of what we do and why we do it and trying to find motivation and meaning and fulfillment in what Mm. we do like and sort of concentrating a little bit more on the why and particularly as as i think we've all gone through this process over the last couple of years i think of of re-evaluating our life absolutely thinking about like how how do you want to spend it because i see i see some friends and things around who who are unhappy in their job because really all they're doing no matter what job it is doesn't really matter if you're working from home you wake up in the morning you sit at a box you sit in front of a box you you tap 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 on the box all day yeah and then you and then you switch the box off and you're still in your house yeah and i i I don't i don't feel like there's any future in that in terms of having living a, a meaningful and fulfilling fulfilling life no absolutely I, I think the interaction between people and our relationship with the natural world and being outside it is so vital to how ha- to our sense of happiness uh, and i think if you're just in your house all day tapping on a box you're not going to get that even if you even if your job is doing something important i think like your physical situation i think matters absolutely yeah uh, and i think that's why and also having the opportunity to be creative and, and interact with other people and i think it's really important and particularly yeah, I, being outside i i totally agree and it's i i think it's it's vital i, I mean i i spent uh my two years of uh you know isolation slash you know coronavirus you know lockdown etc uh pretty much doing what you what you've just said and uh you know at the end of that i i came out and made a decision that you know i'm not going to work the nine to five anymore i'm going to concentrate more on the photography more on you know uh, i started this podcast during the, the 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 pandemic mainly to mainly because we were in a lockdown where i couldn't go more than five kilometers away from where i live yeah. And literally there's very little that's exciting to photograph in, in that five kilometer radius. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was really a creative outlet. And so for me, it was really about making that decision to, to go down that path and spend more time and effort on that than, you know, on other things, you know, now. I think, I mean, I, th- I think that's great. I think it's, it's inspiring hearing stories like that where, you're not just sitting there feeling sorry for yourself do you know what i mean you kind of which we all which we all have i'm sure at some point over the last few years but you've decided to do something you've decided to to bring about a creative outlet for yourself yeah and also the, the the magic thing about these boxes that we sit in front of is it lets us have conversations with each other halfway around the world absolutely yeah. do you know what i mean I, like i've got Every month or so, I have a call with your uh, countryman Andrew Marr, oh, who's yep, become yep. who's become a really good friend over the last few years. And I just, I mean, it's one of the, my favourite things about YouTube is like being able to connect with people who, not in a million years, would I have ever connected with without it. 
And because Andrew came over here, I think back in 2017, 2018, maybe I can't remember exactly. And we spent some time together. Yeah, then just proper connected, hit it off, a little sort of bromance sort of thing, and then um, nice. We and then we've stayed in touch ever since, just with the odd like Skype call and stuff like that. And it's it's nice to have a friend halfway around the world that you can keep connected with. Yeah, absolutely. Quite, quite, quite and, and I think you know that that's one of the one of the benefits of uh, the the technology. Um, you know the the. The, the downsides uh, that we talked about before, you know, as I said, uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I, you know, made some of the decisions that I, you know, have made in terms of spending more time outside, spending more time out, you know, creating and, and you know, doing photography. Mind you, you know, the, this this last month we've had uh, nothing but rain, so, you know, that's, that's not always conducive to good landscape photography. But No, quite. <laughs> But uh, and and way too much rain in the in the last couple of weeks with the uh, the, the floods and so forth. But um, yeah. you know, it's uh, you know for me, it, it's really important to uh, get out there and get about and you know get up early in the morning, go and do something, and then you know you got the whole day ahead of you to you know whether it's editing, whether it's you know working on uh, you know the the, the business and. Uh, yeah. You know, administrative aspects. Uh, and I think so. one, of, one, of, one of the things that I'm kind of keen to push as an idea is that doing landscape photography is so much more than just getting and buying a new lens or yep. getting the fo- or getting the focus point in the right place. And I think deep down, we the landscape photographers understand this. But so much of the conversation is around technical aspects. Yeah, and it's and one I, of the reasons why I don't talk very much about tech on on the podcast. Yeah. Is because to me, that's the that's the least interesting part. It is, but I think what, what one of the issues is that I find is that a lot of the, a lot of people that get into landscape photography have often come from quite a technical background. Mm-hmm. So it kind of speaks to them in that way. But then, I think it's just absolutely vital to get in touch with that human side of what's going on. And how a little bit with about how you're feeling, and I think I was thinking the other day about someone. Someone said again to me that they that we should shoot for ourselves, and I've kind of wrestled with this idea for quite a while now because I don't think I totally agree with it. I I definitely think you should create what you want to create. I think that's that's like no no there shouldn't be any gatekeepers to your creativity do you know what i mean like oh. you should let that run wild but i don't necessarily think we should just be shooting for ourselves because i think the best art and great art even good art is a form of communication absolutely and and, and we should be saying something with the art that we're creating so even if that's just entertainment by looking at a beautiful picture yep but i think really good art it poses questions. It's, it makes you feel something. Indeed, it, like yeah, it invokes an emotion. Yeah. Or and it, it might be, it. as you said, oh, I've got some pleasure out of looking at a nice picture. But yeah, you know, the, the, but it, the but really it, good art does make you think. Exactly. So it should see it. It should be the best pictures 
will be saying something. What that is, it doesn't really matter. But if we're saying something, we surely need someone to listen. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't think the vast majority of landscape photographers or photographers generally are walking around talking to themselves no. or talk, talking to a brick wall. Do you know, that's not what we want to do. I think if we're truly, truly honest with ourselves, we want people to see our work and we want them to like it. And absolutely. I think there's not, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So I think it's a case of, yes, we are, there's no gatekeepers on your creativity. We should be creating exactly what we want personally, but there's nothing wrong with that, that being saying something to someone. Do you know what I mean? And you need, you want, I think it's, I, I don't understand not wanting an audience for your work. Yeah. Like I don't, well, I, I don't, I don't think people are being honest with themselves when they claim that. Yeah, I no, think, I, I, think, I don't. Well, otherwise, why why would you be on social media? Why would you be sharing on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, yeah. YouTube? I think people, I think people get nervous about putting themselves out there. Absolutely, they, yeah. So, so they, so we make excuses for ourselves. I used to do it. That's like kind of what kind of where this conversation started was that I was a bit nervous about being myself on camera and really putting myself out there. And it comes, so one of the decisions I made was just to put everything out there. And it was a freeing experience because I no longer had to worry about what people thought. Because at that point, I had an audience of, say, about 100 people on YouTube. And I knew always that at least one person would like it. Yep. And another person would dislike it. And it's the rule of, it's the rule of one. If one person thinks that way, someone else is bound to. And that and that and that ratio over time as your audience grows will shift. So That's you might right. have sixty sixty percent love this picture, forty percent don't. Eighty percent hate this picture, twenty percent love it. Ninety nine percent of people love this picture, one percent don't. That's all that ratio is gonna shift the entire time. That'll be the case about you, it will be the case about your pictures, it will be the case about what you say. And that's totally fine. Like you you can't please all people all the time. No, absolutely. And I I don't think anyone really should try. I mean, no. I, I don't think anyone also should be going out to offend anyone and everyone, you know, I, either. The you know, the you, you do see the odd uh, odd bit of art that, you know, attempts to be so controversial that, you know, it it's but even there, even if it's 1%, there's still somebody there that's probably going to like it. Yeah. I think even that says something, doesn't it? If someone's trying to be overly controversial, mm. that says a lot about them. Absolutely. And we, we, and, we, and we all see what you're doing. We all know what you're doing. That's right. It's not, it's not that clever, all right? So yeah. stop it. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, don't stop it. I'm not, I'm not the gatekeeper. So don't, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever I'm you want to do. I'm not going to look at it, though, anymore. Because <laughs> I know what you're doing, all right? That's right. Yeah, you, you, you've lost me as a follower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. And that's all, that's all right, isn't it? Absolutely. Like if I, Absolutely. Like if if I well, say it, some if I'm saying something you don't like, don't follow me. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but you don't. What, what was to, the like, there, there was that uh, English woman Mary Whitehouse um, mm. in the, in the seventies who, you know, was that uh, sort of anti uh, swearing, anti just about everything yeah. fun. Um, campaigner in in Britain, um, you know any 
British listeners will probably know who I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, she she tried to set herself up as a gatekeeper, and as far as I'm concerned, well, no, sorry, Mary, you don't get to say, yeah, exactly. you know, I, I've got control over my my watching habits or listening habits or viewing habits, you know, and if I don't like what I see, I'll switch it to another channel or I'll change I'll turn it off or, or whatever, you know, and I'm I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions about what I want to see and what I don't want to see. And, you know, I don't need you to tell me that. You know? Yeah, I get, I get, I feel sorry for these people that walk around getting offended at every little thing. Oh, God, it yeah. Be, it, it must be really tiring. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be, to be I haven't got time. <laughs> to be constantly offended. I just can't, I, I don't get it. Like it was, uh, you must be knackered all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about your photography um, moving away from the, the, the YouTube. And I know for you, they're probably a little bit more intrinsically linked than for, for, for some others. Um, you know, what is it that motivates you to get out there into the field? Is, is it just, you know, you like fresh air, you like hiking, or is it a little bit more and deeper than that? And what is it about getting out there that makes you want to record it and share it with people? The, 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 re, the reason has changed over the years. So, like, when I was younger, it was just because I liked being outside. I was just – that's where my mates were. Yep. That's the thing they, – they were the things we were doing, so I was just outside. Then when I got back into photography in my early 20s – it became an escape in a way like i think and a lot of people still use it as that like it's the it's it, it getting outside was going for a walk going for a hike was like a bit of peace and quiet a bit of time away from the rat race yep and it was that that kind of i think that motivates a lot of people to start capturing it because the, the photography landscape photography does two things it lets you um share the beauty that you are seeing and the experiences that you're having and it also gives you a reason to keep doing it do you know what i mean it's absolutely yeah um it's like the opposite to golf do you know what i mean where they say like <laughs> golf, golf ruins a good walk that's right I, yeah. I think um i think landscape photography enhances a good walk do you know what i mean yep um it's particularly handy if you're not massively fit because you've got an excuse to keep stopping as you're climbing <laughs> up a hill do you know what i mean so um uh, so yeah I mean, and that was so yeah when i was in my early 20s still as a police officer i was kind of it was it was an escape and it was something mm. i did with my mate and we traveled off up to scotland and stuff like that and it was just a week whatever away from the rat race yeah in, in in the beauty of nature and then when i started doing the vlogs that actually and it became a weekly thing that was encouraging me to get out every week in order yeah. to make a vi in order to make a video then it's become more of a professional thing for me and it's almost you know it's almost returned to being an escape again because right. yep. i sit in my office at home now in my studio um and this is work where i'm sat in not not talking to you but like sitting in this sure. office sitting in this office, working at my computer, trying to generate some revenue in whatever way is my work. And then my, like going out and doing landscape photography has almost become my escape again. Right. Okay. There is a little, there is a little bit more pressure sometimes though, because 
I'm wanting to get a video out of it as well. Sure, sure. And sometimes if I don't, I get frustrated. Yeah. I actually did, I actually did it the other day where I went out to the coast, um, didn't film anything because I got frustrated and the tide wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. I got all annoyed with myself. And then I was hiking back up to the car, up the cliff to the car, and some like really nice light sort of burst through the clouds. Mm-hmm. And I took I took a photo of it, but I didn't do any video. Yep. I then got didn't think too much of it, then got back and edited the photo, and I thought actually I really like this. So I took a photo without doing any video and it kind of made me feel better about the whole thing. But then it, consequently, I then felt annoyed that I hadn't filmed it. <laughs> so it's, it's this kind of constant... You, you've like, lost the opportunity for the content. Yes. Exactly. So it's this kind of constant sort of back and forth. And it's about, for me now, it's about trying to find an equilibrium of uh, of creating content, but also enjoying the photography and trying to maintain photography first. Yeah. Not worry, not worrying as much about the video, which isn't always easy to do. Um, but it... But I think what probably what most people get out of it is what I used to get out of it in terms of it. Like, yep. you you do your job, you want a little escape from it, you go and do some photography. It makes you feel better because you're being creative, you're getting a bit of exercise, you're outside connecting with nature. Landscape photographers, I think what most people don't do, like when they're outside, people will go on a hike and they'll be marching yep. along for four hours I think the thing that landscape photographers have is that we stop. Yeah, we, 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 and, we walk for eight or nine hours. <laughs> yeah, and then we stop and stopping. we wait. And we, we observe. And, and there's a lot comes out of those moments. Mm. It's why I like it's why I like making hot drinks in the field. Do you know what I mean? Because you kind yep. of... And camp, camping out like up on top of a mountain and things. And because it, it really like it... It's almost like this primal thing of like living outside and cooking yeah. outside. And I mean, you, you, Australians are obviously famous for their barbecues. Like there's, there's, there's something that feels intrinsically right about cooking outside. Absolutely. Like, and it, like it connects to, it genuinely connects to who we are. So I think being still and not moving whilst being outside away from your home i think there's something quite special about that that is almost like a basic instinct almost Mm. um that i think a lot of people have lost but landscape photographers find again do you know what i mean like it's no i i I really like that idea it's uh it's interesting i guess one one of the things in terms of the 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 photography side of things and the creative side of things when did it start to become about art as opposed to snapshots and you know that's a nice scene i'll take that you know i'll take that shot and it's just a nice scene as opposed to you know trying to you know play with long exposure you know doing different things with editing and processing and so forth and the, the the more creative side of it i think most people go through a very natural process where it starts with the art they 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 enjoy the outdoors and the, like i said earlier what attracts us is that we want to show this beauty off mm-hmm. that that's art like you you 
you're trying to share your love of that landscape with someone and i think that for most people that's where it begins oh i want to take a photograph of this because it looks great i want to show someone how great this looks that that is art like you're trying to portray that story but then you think about getting a nice camera and then you've got to figure out how to use it and you get sucked into these technical aspects and for quite a while depending how off how frequently you shoot you forget about the artistic stuff but i think this is a natural process of learning like one of the things i learned when i was a cop is like you go into being a police officer with a lot most people with a, a lot of common sense like you know yep. roughly what's right and wrong do you know what i mean yeah. but then but then you started learning about legislation and the law and it's almost sucks common sense out of it yeah so that's what, like new police officers are often quite like at risk because they forget about common sense which they had initially but they're so focused on the technical the technicalities of the law and how they apply it in a legal way that they forget about common sense yeah yeah and after a while forget about the discretion which they may have to yeah, interpret but with, but with experience that starts to creep back in and i think that same same pattern happens with photographers is that you start off with that artistic desire you then focus on the technical because it's almost a necessity. You've got to learn how your camera works. There's no yeah. two ways about it. And after a while, you drift back, you become competent with your camera and the technical aspects, and you can drift back into that more the artistic side. And I think it's quite a natural progression for everybody. What some people get stuck with is in that, they get stuck in that technical area. And I think the reason that happens, and this is what not many people talk about, is good old hard work and practice yeah yeah like there's there's no replacement for that you, you can't become a master of your camera if you only use it once a year absolutely you know what I mean? like you've got to be using it more than that you've got to be practicing and working hard to get better at it like so you'll never get you'll never get into that artistic interesting area unless you put the work in it's like anything it's like any skill yeah. like, what is I, it I, I don't know how we are we saying yeah exactly are we like are we saying photography is not a skill so you don't do you know what i mean like people say oh you just you've got a nice camera so just point it at something and you get a good picture is that what well, that's that all what that's all you do you just push a button don't yeah you? exactly <laughs> like is, is that what we're saying or or are we are we saying that it's a really interesting art that you can get really good at that, that like people can get objectively good at photography and yeah create objectively good photographs yeah, I think that I think you can, but it takes hard work and practice, like any skill does. Absolutely, yeah. Talking about your local area, I guess uh, I'm interested. You know, you're based in Yorkshire, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So what uh, what what sort of things are you seeing around your local area that I guess uh, impress you enough to to, to get out there? Um, and I guess, you know, just for people that don't know the area, you know, what are conditions like and um, you know, what what are your what what are your favorite locations around where you live? Yeah, I mean I'm really fortunate where I live. I live in a place a city called Leeds. Uh, it's if you look at a map of the UK from the top of Scotland to the very bottom of England, yep. I'm pretty much bang bang in the middle. 
of of the United Kingdom. So, and in Northern England, it's very hilly. So, I have about four national parks within about an hour and a half of my house. Yep. So if I go west, I've got the Lake District. Yep. If I go north, I'm into the Yorkshire Dales. If I go east, I get to the North Yorkshire Moors and the Yorkshire Coast. Yep. And if I go south, I'm into what they call the Peak District. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I'm very fortunate with that, with where I live. And it provides almost endless photo opportunities. And I'm very much a proponent of going to the same place over and over again. Mm-hmm. Because di- so such different things can happen. Absolutely, if, yeah. If you go there enough and you become you become a storyteller of that place. And you're always if you explore enough and you walk enough, you're gonna find new things as well. That's not the case everywhere. Every time I talk to Andrew Marr, I'm just utterly blown away by the size of Australia and how far he's got to go to find a new location. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. I, I only have to travel a ma- maximum of sort of three hours to get to all the best places in the UK, pretty much. Um, whereas he's doing a f- eight-hour drive to the beach. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's mind-bending how big Australia is. So yeah, well, it depends. I mean, if I if I there's some beaches where it would take me a long time. Living in Sydney, I've I've probably got about an hour to to, to yeah. most. You know, the what is there? There's something like seventy beaches within an hour of where I am, and right. they're they're all different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got I've got mountains, I've got hills, I've got moor, like wild moors, I've yeah. got woodland, all the woodland I could ever want. I've got coastlines. I've got cliffs. I've got beaches. Snow in winter. Snow in winter. You've got you've got a proper four seasons. That's one thing. Autumn, that, yeah, autumn colour, spring greens. Like it's. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a landscape photographer's dream, really. Like mm. it's amazing. It's also why I don't feel the need to travel too much. Yeah, I was I was going to ask: Do do you travel very far for your photography? Not at the moment, and I haven't done for the last few years. And like I said, that's because I don't want to be away from my children every sure. night. Um, I, I also, I'm, I'm kind of torn with the, the the authenticity side of things. So, like, I kind of, I understand who my audience are, yeah, and the stories that I'm telling. And if the story is right, this. If the story is, look how amazing I am, and look in this, look would look at this amazing place I'm at that you're not at. <laughs> I understand how that comes across, and that's not like that. They are not the stories and the videos that I want to make because that's not who I am. I want to like make con. I want to make content that does something for someone, whether it's entertainment or a bit of education or sparks a slightly different way of thinking and it be- and it's it's relatable because it's something you can do wherever you are in the world do you know what i mean like 
that and it's that sort of more human side that I'm interested in and it's not about the travel for me like that's not what my channel is about it's not about look at this amazing place I mean isn't this place in South America utterly beautiful that's and if I did go I'm not saying I won't go I won't go somewhere like that but if I did that wouldn't be the story it would be it would be something about the adventure and the difficulties do you know what I mean like that sort it'd be about almost like a quest type story rather than that it'd be the pursuit of something rather than look how amazing I am and look at this amazing place I'm in and I don't I think some some videos sometimes come across like that and I, 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 I'm not as interested in watching those yeah no I, I think like I think to, to name an example of someone who does it really well I think someone like Morton Hilmer if you come across him he yep. does it amazingly well like his trips to Greenland and stuff where he's camping in the snow on an ice cap by himself with with a with a gun and a um electric fence to scare off the bears and that sort of thing like i think that's incredible like it's absolutely because it, yeah. i would i would love to do something like that but i think probably some people look at it thinking thinking i could never do that but i'm loving watching him do it because yeah, he's telling yeah. that he's telling that story in a really natural exciting way that's offering a lot of value to the people watching it uh and i think that's that's kind of what i want my channel to be about but it's not about trap but it's not about travel like I, I don't want to make travel a big part of a big part of what my channel's about because thinking about i'm making no judgment but I, i'm wrestling with the idea of being someone that promotes tourism as well like i'm not i don't quite know how i feel about that yet yeah um, yeah so f from an environmental point of view i'm like i say i'm making a, I'm, I'm making i'm making no judgment and i don't know the i don't have all the answers but it's just something i'm kind of thinking about of where where i want where i actually stand on that yeah well there's a couple of things i want to talk to you about uh the environment which we'll come to shortly but before we do do you have a favorite spot that just keeps drawing you back and what you don't have to give away any particular secret spots that you know you you, you don't want to get uh ruined by over time. i mean I, I love i i love the north yorkshire moors and the yorkshire coast because it's where i grew up yep and i think it's one of the most beautiful and underrated parts of the world mm. like in the in the uk like the lake district gets yeah all, it, gets, it's gets definitely you've got that star iconic sort of yeah and, scotland, and the highlands of scotland and stuff gets yep. all the gets all the attention but there's so much going on and when i look at like i've got prints up on the wall in my my studio here and when i look around them like so many of them are from yorkshire uh, um and they all look so different as well so it's kind of it keeps me coming back because there's so much variety i think more than anything so yeah probably yeah north yorkshire yeah cool so I guess moving back to what we were just talking about, some of the, the environmental things and so forth, um, you know, but aside from the, the, the travel aspects, there's, you know, been a lot of discussion around things uh, like NFTs and, you know, um, how bad they can be for the environment or, you know, 
so forth. One of the things that uh, I, I saw in your Twitter feed, uh, I think probably a few weeks ago now, but um, you know, was it was a bit of a, a thread that talked about how you'd come to your decision about whether or not to play in that space. Um, yeah. Could you talk to me a bit, bit about that? Absolutely. So I started, I can't remember how long, it, we're probably going about four years ago when my channel started getting a little bit bigger or when I was hitting like 100,000 subscribers or something. I started to get very wary about sharing my locations. And up to that point, I had shared a lot of them because I didn't want people to think I was hiding my locations because I want to keep those images just for me. You know, I did, yeah, yeah. And I think so, some people do hide their locations for that reason, but I didn't. I want to. I'm not trying to hold any knowledge in. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. However, I think we started seeing in the UK some examples of areas being damaged and destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a global problem. I don't think it's just. Yeah. The and, I, and, I, and I, I was thinking, I just looked at the numbers of what, so say if I have 100,000 subscribers, 1% of those people are idiots, right? Yep. Even if 20% of those idiots, so 20% of 1% of my audience, yep. travel to the places that I've told them about and damage that location, that is not, an impact that I want to have. So I decided to stop sharing my um, my locations. That's in combination with me wanting to, as a landscape photographer, someone who openly cares about the landscape and nature and the environment, to learn, I wanted to learn more about it because some of the stuff that I was seeing felt like, if you don't mind me swearing, bullshit. Oh, go for it. It's, a, it's an adult podcast. Okay, some of the stuff I was seeing felt like bullshit. So people talked a lot about um, about carbon offsetting. Yep. And having been a cop, like I can sniff when I sniff bullshit, something that smells like bullshit. It's yep. usually bullshit. Mm -hmm. So carbon offsetting felt a little bit like that. Like you can you can do as many flights as you want as long as you buy some carbon offsetting. Yep. It doesn't make I, sense. I, I used to work in the airline industry, and uh, you know that that was always something that I sort of screwed my eyes up and said, nah, "Yeah, no, so I don't, I don't buy that." So very recently, I heard this story of um, this. It's I can't remember the name. I'll look. Let me just look it up because it's, I do have it. Um, it's a, an organization in in the US called. Um, what are they called? The Massachusetts Audubon um, area. They they own a woodland, basically, and they, they yep. help birds and stuff. And what they did was sell carbon offsetting credits to the oil industry. So the oil industry can say, well, we're being ESG compliant, we're being environmentally friendly, because we've bought these carbon, we're buying these carbon offsetting credits. Now, what this organization did was they sold these credits to the oil companies for a lot of money mm -hmm. based on the fact that they'd promise not to cut their trees down. So they weren't ever going to cut the trees down because they're, they're there to protect some of the birds. 
Yeah. And they own this woodland. So they promised not to cut the trees down. And that was the carbon offsetting credit. Now there are there are be- there are better carbon credits than that, but a lot of it's bullshit. Yeah. And a lot of it's a scam. And, and the, the amount, I mean, even if you are planting trees, the amount that you need to plant to actually truly offset the carbon usage is yeah. almost unsustainable. Exactly. And, and, and also the planting of trees can have unintended consequences Correct. On, on, the, on the ecosystem that they get planted in as well. Um, so the, it's a lot more complicated than people make out. So anyway, I, I decided like I don't really know that much about the like environmental issues, mm-hmm. and I suspect some of it's not true as well because it's so political. Um, so I decided to I'd start looking into it myself, and I started doing that. And there was various little bits I was looking at that and this is linked to NFTs so to brought, to bring it all around. I then started looking. I heard about NFTs at the start of end of twenty twenty. Yep start of 2021 um i thought that and it was on the basis that this is empowering for artists and it could be empowering for photographers by creating this marketplace that didn't exist before that celebrates artists i thought that sounds really interesting the fact that with an nft non-fungible token you buy you're essentially by you minting this thing on a blockchain uh and you then sell that NFT that links to an image to a person. But then if it sells again, if it, if it's sold on, you the original artist gets a portion of that or of that sale, like, yeah, like a royalty. That was exciting. That excited me. I thought, oh wow, this could be good, not just for me, but for yeah. And it, it sort of flips the traditional art world a little bit on the head, where the yeah. control comes back to the artist yeah. as opposed to the gallery. Yeah, it could work for me. Mu- it could work for music artists. It could work for yep. photographers, any digital artists, anything. So I got really excited about it. So I thought, well, I'm going to give it a go. I want to have some skin in the game to to understand this. So I one day jumped on to the internet, did a little bit of research, and bought a one ether, one Ethereum. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point it was about, I think I got my first one for about £800, something like that. And then I did minted an NFT, created like a smart contract. So that was half of that £800 gone on that uh, for the gas fees and stuff. And then I did a little bit more research and the environmental thing came up. And it, people talked about how much energy it, it it uses and the impact it could have. So I thought, uh, it's interesting, but I'm not into this technology if that's what it's doing. Then I, then I forgot about it. And then I think it was in April, so four months later, I just happened to look at my wallet, my Ethereum wallet, and it was up at like three and a half thousand pounds, something yep. like that. Uh, and I became it got my attention again because I'd made some money for nothing do you know what I mean like this this sort of magic internet money and, uh, that's interesting so I started to look into it a bit more again and it led me into this kind of what is now like 
a 15 month long bit of research that over a thousand hours of research into how the economy works and by initially looking at nfts and ethereum it led me on to learning about bitcoin yep and how this cryptocurrency called bitcoin essentially was like it came out of nowhere just by this guy who stayed anonymous and then disappeared yeah and it and it became this thing which is possibly probably a lot of people think it's definite the most sound money that's ever existed because it's limited to 21 million coins it's can't be hacked it's never been hacked in its entire history and could do a lot of good for the world but it is based on bitcoin mining which is similar to how ethereum works ethereum is done with mining as well and that got me then again looking at the environment and the the link to it and that's then got me looking at like the energy industry and this is a lot about a tweet i put a, a twitter thread i put out yesterday it got me looking into the energy industry and that was one of the most enlightening things i've ever learned about the environment the connection between the environment it's literally everything i've ever cared about all yep. wrapped up into one thing is the environment uh how the effect that it has on the economy the effect that it has on social aspects and fairness and people having opportunities and poverty not being a thing and the money system and it all ties in and energy all ties into the same thing it like absolutely blew my mind mm. and leaving bitcoin aside all of these things come together and i think we're seeing it now with the invasion of ukraine the effect that money has on the entire system so we're we're, we're obviously punishing russia with these sanctions but that's not that's going to punish us as well because of the the way the economy is linked to energy and yeah. how it's linked to people's social and particularly in europe the reliance on russian oil and gas for exactly the every, the whole system is linked and I, I, that absolutely blew my mind but then that led me to looking more into the energy industry and how we generate energy so i've done loads and loads of research about how that works and i think if we're if you're not a person that denies climate change is happening yep i think the 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 build-up of co2 in the atmosphere has been measured and is beyond i think you i don't understand how you can deny that's happened and the 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 the, the speed at which global warming has occurred fits in with it being man man-made we've had warmer times in our in the planet's history yep but not not at the rate that we've seen now so I think it's difficult to deny that we've had a played a part in that. The science suggests that we that we we have. But then, what are we going to do about it? Um, and I think what seems sensible is to stop burning stuff and electrify everything. So turning your gas guzzling car into an electric car, 
turning your gas heating of your home into electrical heating. And then so electrifying everything and then building up a renewable, clean source of energy. And that then got me into looking about about power generation. And there's a problem with there's a problem with renewable energy because it's intermittent. So the, the wind doesn't blow all yeah, the time. If there's, if there's no wind, you're not generating it. Yeah, there's and the, no sun, sun, the, sun, the sun doesn't shine at night. So you need this like flexible load power to go along with it. And mostly that comes with gas, burning gas. And that's the problem we're seeing in Germany at the moment is this this mix of solar, wind and gas leaves a country vulnerable to external forces yeah. economically as much as politically and socially. Yeah. So this is where it all came together, and that Bitcoin can provide a solution because it it can incentivize the building out of the amount of renewables that we actually need to all live on it. So, for example, if we're all living off renewable energy with a bit of nuclear as a base load, we need to push it way above what we need. Yeah. To to be able to power it, but you need to incentivize that with users of electricity that can be flexible. And Bitcoin is one of these. I think there's things like there's things like the creation of hydrogen is another one, and desalinate, desalinating the sea or salt water is salt river water is another one as well. There's a big desalination plant in London that we we're using salt water for drinking water for millions of people in London. It's happening already. Technology's there, but it's it's power hungry. So it's another source, another way that we could kind of incentivize building out this big renewable infrastructure so if you include cryptocurrencies particularly bitcoin yep into a system that could actually make renewables more economically viable and over time because you can't do it suddenly you can't just suddenly get rid of fossil fuels because it will damage too many people's lives yep. you're literally like freezing people out of their homes if we do that so if we're taking this sort of gradual approach, which we need to do more quickly than we are, we end up with a system of loads of renewables with these flexible things like Bitcoin. So if we are saying that cryptocurrency, I'm not in just just Bitcoin. I think that's, if you're into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, I think you should just look at Bitcoin and not be as interested in the others. But I think when people attack NFTs to bring it all back to this, with a slightly long-winded approach attacking nfts based on its use of power is a mistake that is not i don't think that's the tact we should be using to attack nfts because because not right it's been it's been done on studies that have looked at the use of power with bitcoin particularly and ethereum based on transactions yeah and that isn't how you should measure the power or the carbon output of a blockchain. The data centers where these things are occurring. You've yeah. got to look at the blockchain as a whole. Yep. And and the amount of money that's in it. You can't just look at a single block with the transactions in it and apply all the, the carbon emissions to those transactions. And that's how these people have got to, oh, one transaction uses as much power as you would use in so... That's not true. It's been done in a... That's been worked out in a way that's not intellectually honest yep either by someone that's trying to be dishonest or someone that doesn't understand exactly how these technologies work yep 
However, I do think there is a better way to show these blockchains up for what they are. So that's why I'm saying Bitcoin, not cryptocurrency. Bitcoin yeah. came Bitcoin came out it was almost like a religious birth. It came out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And the person that started it has disappeared. So there's no one that controls Bitcoin. It's gen- it's genuinely decentralized. And it's the decent the part of what the NFT marketing is is around this idea of it being decentralized. And really only Bitcoin is decentralized. The others, all the other blockchains are centralized to a certain amount. One one of the things that I've seen, particularly with just the image hosting, I think there's uh, one which was created by um, a guy whose Twitter handle is uh, Cactux called Tuxart. And yeah. it is the only one that I've seen where the image hosting itself is actually decentralized. If you look at OpenSea, Foundation, Sloika, the rest of them, um, you know, super rare, et cetera, rareable, they're yeah. all they're all centralized. They, they all have a specific data center where your images yeah. are housed. And yeah, I, mean, what- I, I, I was actually looking at OpenSea earlier today, um, well, not, not that long ago, um, and I was getting a 504 error. Yeah. Now that means I mean, it's, got, it's gone down a few times. The host yeah. is not there. Yeah. So I mean, th- that that's why I think part of Ethereum is utterly dishonest because it there's also the fact that it was made by a few people who, before it went on sale to the public, made a load of coins for themselves before they even started mining. They created a load of coins just for themselves and they kept them. They then started mining. And they mined loads as well for themselves. And these people still maintain a huge portion of the Ethereum ether that's out there. And the Ethereum Foundation also make decisions pretty much to however they want to make it. So they've changed the monetary policy of Ethereum a few times now. They did it recently with an upgrade that made some coins get burned in a transaction. So the, the the monetary policy is changing all the time, and that's where Bitcoin is different because you can't do that. The monetary policy was set on day one, and it's pretty much never changed, and that's why it's so good. But a big part of NFTs is they were created as a marketing tool for the use of this blockchain, Ethereum. And I don't think most people that are using NFTs understand the technology behind it. So a big part of the marketing around Ethereum and NFTs is the fact they're decentralized. So your this image is a one of one. It cannot be reproduced. Yep. And to some extent that's true. But also the 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 blockchain is not decentralized. And if we move over to the upgrade of ETH2, it'd be become even less decentralized once they do it on proof of stake rather than proof of work. So I think the fact it's not decentralized is one of the biggest issues. And then when you look at even the fact that the image is not stored on the blockchain, yep. the image is not unique. I heard a really good example of of how to describe this is that people think an NFT is an image stored on a blockchain. That's what people think, but that's not true. So imagine, imagine a suite, a single suite in a wrapper, right? You pull the two ends of the wrapper and it unwinds and you take, 
you take the sweet out and you eat the sweet. But this is a magic sweet, right? So that you, that will copy and it will reproduce itself infinite number of times whenever anyone wants. They yeah. can have, they can reproduce your sweet. As long as they get to see your sweet, they can reproduce it. And it can be recreated unlimited times for no cost. But, and this is what, what an NFT is, you are the sole owner of that wrapper. Yes. So you own that tiny little bit of plastic that's wrapped this magic suite that can be reproduced by anyone, anytime, by screenshotting yep. that suite. Do you know what I mean? But you, the blockchain says that you own the wrapper. And that's literally all it is. And then you've got these centralized systems like you mentioned, like Foundation, OpenSea, even Met, the wallet MetaMask is centralized. Absolutely. We we saw it the other day. They've cut Russian people off, and they've cut Iranian people off from accessing their funds in MetaMask. Yep. Um, because it's centralized. Yeah. So this, so this I, has I, control I, over it. Yeah. Exactly. So that like the so marketing these things as being decentralized, which is a huge part of the marketing. It it's what creates a whole lot of the value of these things. Is utterly utterly dishonest. Yeah, and I think that's what we should be looking at if we're going to attack NFTs, not not the environmental stuff, because I don't think that's going to prove to be true in the end. It's all, I mean, it's not true. It's been dishonestly reported the environmental side of things, and if we look at Bitcoin possibly being part of the solution to the environmental and energy problem, then it's it's not right to attack it based on the environment. So this long, <laughs> this long, long process of going through this learning is—I just found it amazing how everything tied together and gave me an understanding of better of the environment and power, money, and NFT. How NFTs fitted into all of this. Yeah, I think NF, but NF, you can't deny that NFTs have value because people are paying. Like, oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's people are paying like huge any- amounts of money for them. So yeah. right now they do they have value, but I don't think it's going to last. Like, yeah. it's it, it's a system based on thin air. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's not the case with Bitcoin. Like, it's it is digital still. Yeah, but, but it, it's it, but, but it can't be changed, and it's it, that's it. People, yeah. it's no more a fiction than normal normal money. Yeah, no, um, I'm, but, I know exactly where you're coming from on that. One of the things I found I find with with nfts more recently is it when you look at the nft community on twitter it's unbelievable how many of them are burnt out and tired and struggling mm-hmm. and stressed and depressed because they're seeing this gold rush and they want a part of it <coughs> and they've built a project that this build we want to build so- you're not building anything. You're putting a gallery together. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And they're talking, and there's all this language that you've kind of got to slot into. And the idea of Web three. I mean, I what is Web three? It's just a nonsense. <laughs> um, but in the metaverse and all that kind of stuff, it's not. It's just not real. If we're talking about the metaverse being virtual reality, then that's cool. But why does it need to be tokenized? Do you know what I mean? Why is it? Why does it all need to be? Well, I mean, it, it existed with uh, what was it, Second Life, and uh, you know, there's but there's been a few stabs at uh, yeah. at, at that. But um, but it, but if you're trying to do NFTs and you're seeing everybody else have this success, 
it's going to cause you stress, isn't it? Yeah. Because you compare, you're constantly comparing yourself to someone. And and like most gold rushes, the guys that make most of the money are not the bikes digging the holes or panning in the stream. They're the guys that are selling the pans, the picks and the shovels and yeah. selling the food and the, the, the drink and whatever that goes along with, you know, being part of that community and, and, and doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing I mean, another, another interesting thing is like if what happens if the Ethereum network just dies? Like they'd switch to ETH2. What happens if that doesn't work? Like it's all your money stored up in this thing, which is centralized really. But like I saw the other day that I think 30 or 40% of Ethereum nodes, and then it's a, it's a collection of computers that all make up this, this system, live on Amazon Web Services. Yep. So it's like <laughs> the, the foundation of this thing that you've got your entire personal wealth in is built on Amazon Web Services and a, f- and a few other cloud services. Like, that's not decentralized. Do you know what I mean? If, if enough of them went down suddenly, you might lose all... Your personal wealth is all tied up in it. That I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if that was the case for me. Well, a, a when, really interesting case would be, let, let's say it happened um, in, in the next couple of months that uh somebody said oh well the guys that actually invented ethereum are all russian and i know that's not the case but let's say that 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 was what what found out okay so what's amazon web services going to do are they going to leave them running or are they going to switch them off because they're running a separate economy that may be benefiting the the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I mean, you, you, you could say, oh, they'll never do that. But we've seen some crazy stuff happen in the last few months, haven't we? Yeah, do you know what I mean? Even in the last few months. Yeah. Uh, like, you've, you've got the Canadian government shutting off people's bank accounts and stuff. Like, oh, we think we'd, we'd, we thought, oh, they'll never do that. But they did. Russia will never invade, Russia will never invade Ukraine. But they did. So, like, what, what's coming next? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, so, like... I think anything's on the table at the moment. And I think that's why these more genuinely decentralized thing like Bitcoin, where anyone can run a node. It doesn't need, because the block size is so small, anyone can run a node. The, the entire Bitcoin blockchain is about 500 gigabytes. So anyone can store it. Where, Whereas the Ethereum blockchain is, I think, into multiples of terabytes yep. already. So to run a to run a node, you need something like Amazon Web Services. Absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise you'd be you'd be having pin a fortune on hard drives, and that's why that's why Bitcoin is decentralized and Ethereum is not. So having your wealth and selling, not just having your wealth in it, but selling it to the people. This is why I opted out of it eventually because maybe NFTs work out and maybe Ethereum works out. But I don't have enough confidence in it, having done the research I've done, to be sure. Sure. So, so say if say if I sell you a print, right? I, I print out on my printer over there, and a nice A two print, and I ship it to you. Yep. I have a hundred percent confidence in that work, right? Because I've inspected it myself. I can ship it to you, and as long as it r- arrives in that same condition, and I package it quite well, so hopefully it will. We've made this transaction, and I'm. 100% certain you've got what you paid for, right? 
How you look after it after that is up to you. But it arrived it arrived with you in a hundred percent condition. I can't do that with NFTs. So I deliver I sell you an NFT for some exorbitant price, say three thousand dollars I sell you an NFT for. I've got no idea that in a year's time that NFT is gonna be worth zero. Yeah. From a all good consciousness, I can't sell that to you because I, I'm not certain that what I'm selling you is a good product. Yeah. And I'm not that kind of guy. Some people are. Some the snake snake oil salesman out there, isn't there? But the but people that are, are buying the art for art are going to say, yeah, but I've got the file and I've got access to it. So if I want to create a print or I want to look at it anytime, well, that also depends a little bit on how you deliver that. As well. Yeah, but in that, if that's the case, why does it, if if that is the case, why does it need to be decentralized? Do you know and what it, I mean? Yeah, and that that's, why why that's do we need this narrative? Why does it need to be on a blockchain? It's not decent. Like the the image lives on OpenSea any or Foundation anyway. Yep. Like when when you if you transfer an NFT into your MetaMask wallet, it's calling the API from OpenSea to show you that image. That's right. So it's not even so. Like if we have these centralized services, there's nothing wrong with centralized services. It's obviously not right for everything, but we're going to always need some centralized services. Yeah. But why why are we pretending that these things are decentralized when they're not? I don't get it. Like, so if you want to buy a JPEG, cool. But we've had to, that's great. I'm well into digital art. I think the idea of owning some digital art is great. I think it was... um um. The Twitter guy Jack, what's he called? He's not. He's not at Twitter anymore. What's he called? Yeah, it was Jack. It was just Jack. Yeah, yeah. Well, at Jack, wasn't it? But he, um, he, he. One thing he said about NFTs is that we're asking the right question, but the answer's not there yet. Yeah, and I think that's quite accurate. So, the question being like, how do we empower artists? How do we fairly pay creators? How do we make sure they're getting residuals on the stuff they create? I think these are all the, all the things that people love about NFTs, and then what I initially attracted me. But it's built it's built on a foundation of shit. Yeah, and I think that's that's the best way to put it at the moment. So, and and people are going to get hurt. People are going to lose their money. And so I, that's why eventually I've just. I mean, that that said, I mean there there's certainly been some success stories for artists. You know, the Cats oh, absolutely. world and yeah. uh, Drift. I think they were they were both at Sotheby's at a, a at an auction where, I'm, I, and I'm not entirely sure how that worked, but you know, there, there was real money being handed over for oh yeah for their. Interest. I mean, it's it's changed, it's changed some photographers lives doesn't it for the better yeah absolutely like they, they, overnight they've made this life-changing money and i think that's great but i think we've personally i don't want to be replacing a broken system with, with another broken system yeah that lo- initially looks amazing do you know what i mean it's like it's a it's a wolf in sheep it's a sheep in wo- the way around wolf, wolf in, in sheep's clothing. clothing yeah that's what that's what it kind of is and and some people will benefit. Do you know what I mean? It's like the sheep the sheep gives out. The sheep lulls you in. It gives out some like treats. 
gives out some treats to start with before it shows itself to be a wolf. Yeah. To like bait, to bait everybody. Like it's, was it a bait and switch? Isn't it? It's like a lot. It's like a lot. It's a long term bait and switch. Like, and, and the stories of success are what adds to the whole thing. So you see one photographer with life changing money. They become your best marketer for this thing. Look at this. I can't believe this has happened to me. This has been amazing. How amazing are NFTs? Because they've changed my life. Yeah. Date that person. And it, do you know what? A lot of these people are doing this. The people buying those NFTs for a terrible amounts of money are the people that started Ethereum. Yep. That's what's that's what's so mental about it. It's the it's literally the people that started it pumping their own bags through this kind of marketing just it's not a system i want to be part of like it's just it's fair crazy. enough fair enough <laughs> and i'm i'm sure this will generate a, a, a bit of conversation in in my comments at some point but uh you know i, I mean i hope it does look if people if the, people, same here and it's 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 why one of the reasons why i asked you on is to have that com conversation about this stuff because to me it's not about sitting there and saying, you know, it's all wonderful. It's, you know, it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I've had a, had a few people on who have been very positive about it. But, you know, I think for, from my perspective, it's, it's about being an open and honest about whether or not these things are actually for everyone. And, you know, they're, they're not necessarily a good thing and they're not necessarily for everyone. No, I mean, I, one... I think one important thing to say is that I hope something like this does work. And I am absolutely all in favour of doing something that benefits artists and benefits. That's what I'm all about. Like yep. having these empowering people to be successful and earn money and do live the life they want to live. But I, I my main concern is I don't think it's built on the right foundation. Mm. And for the greater good, I don't think Ethereum particularly or any of the others is. I think if you could figure out some way to, to, to do smart contracts and NFTs on Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin network, I think we'd be in a much stronger position mm, yeah. um, because it's genuinely decentralized and no one controls it. So... Um, that's where I kind of hope it goes. Although I'm still, I'm to be honest, I'm just personally, I'm not that interested. Like, yeah, uh, particularly for photographers, I think it's great. Digital artists are a, a different thing, but like, you can't replace printing a good bit of photography. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's well, I know printing's a big part of uh, your work. Um, have you got any uh, advice for people that? either want to get into printing their own work or you know uh, want, want to you know <clears throat> take their their art a little bit further in terms of printing i mean yes but i am just about to film a video actually all right well i won't that, that covers all <laughs> i won't ask you to spoil that then <laughs> watch watch my video on, on well it'll be going out on saturday i think if you want to want some of those tips it might have a slightly clickbaity title but it, it's a it's essentially like stuff, some stuff to avoid and mistakes to avoid and that kind of thing. And but that some, not all beginner stuff, but some kind of 
ways to get into printing and ways to think about it and um just try and see it as a part of the photography process yeah yeah like again i'm not like i'm not setting the rules i'm not the gatekeeper but like there are some people out there that think it's not it's not a photograph until you print it yeah i don't don't i don't necessarily think that but like i was gonna ask do you do you shoot with a view to printing yes absolutely yeah yeah I mean that 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 alone has been a game changer for me. Yeah, yeah. I think I, th- I personally, I think that really changes the way that you think about what it is that you are shooting and what it is that you, you know, doing in terms of composition and the the, the lighting and so forth as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because I think some some things that I've been talking about are really simple to understand, like the joy of doing landscape photography and sure. even like even printing a piece of work like you get it you get it in your hand especially if it's your own work mm-hmm. get it in your hand you think oh wow like i've i've made this it's yeah. a thing uh, that i've made it's really satisfying it's simple to understand but like some of the stuff around nfts the environment energy all that kind of thing it's just it's taken me so long to kind of research and investigate it all and i'm struggling i think to to um relay these ideas in a way that's kind of digestible um oh, i think you've done a, done a pretty good job one of the things i feel challenged with at the moment but it's i mean it's part of, I, I don't want to just talk about the technical aspects of photography like what like like what you've said yeah i think photography is like this window into life i mean it's, lit- it's literally that isn't it like we're we're capturing a moment in time of life because we're not we're not drawing a picture we're capturing something that's actually in front of us um so i think it's this window into life that gives us the ability to explore so much of what's going on and i think landscape photographers particularly are almost without fail people who love the environment and love the landscape and want to protect it and do something about it yeah absolutely it's just i just find this it's interesting it leads down from a basis of photography it leads down all these different avenues that are way more interesting than just talking about like the f-stop of your lens do you know what i mean like it's and that's kind of that's kind of what i like talking about at the moment so Hey. If if we've lost some people throughout this conversation, I apologise for that. But that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a problem. Um, I'm sure I'm sure we'll pick them up elsewhere. <laughs> Hopefully. So, are there any photographers that you think I should be talking to, uh, and and make sure that I get on the podcast? Yeah, have you talked to Andrew Marr yet? I haven't yet. He's. Uh, who, I, I I I think he is firmly on the list now. Yeah, I mean, I think he is one of the most underrated photographers out there. I think he's one of the best photographers out there. Mm, but, okay. like, the, the the following he has does not reflect how good he is as a photographer and as a person as well. Um, so, yeah, I'll definitely talk to him. Uh, I've had a few really interesting conversations recently with verity milligan i had her on my youtube channel as well yep she's a she's a photographer here in the uk who i work with sometimes uh really thoughtful person really interesting person 
and just a superb photographer on on top of that i mean i i would i'd love to hear some of your conversations about that with people who are into nfts photographers that are in favor of nfts i've invited a few to come and talk to me about it and they've declined interesting um, which which I find problematic from trying to have a discourse, uh, have a, a fair discourse about it. Yeah, yeah. Like, surely if you believe in it and you're making money from it and you're selling selling them to other people, you should be willing to come and have a discussion with someone that is more sceptical. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But... Uh, so, <laughs> I think, like... One of the things that my friend sent to me one time years ago, in it, I think it comes down to people not wanting to talk to talk to me about this. Sometimes is that I think people have can see now with the way I've been talking about it that I've done the work. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I've done the research, and my friend said to me like one time, like to be successful, you just need to outwork the next guy. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I'm not sure that. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, I hope it's not true. I'd like to. I would like to talk to some people in the in the NFT community who are really into it. I'm not. I'm just not sure how knowledgeable some of them are. Yeah, I, I I I think you find there's there's a range of knowledge, but there, and there's some that are right into some of the technical aspects of how to write the smart contracts and all those sorts of things. But yeah. um, in terms of that macroeconomic view and how it fits into everything else and whether or not it's truly decentralised. I think there are a lot of people that are, you know, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid as opposed to actually yeah. putting a bit of think, clarity into their thinking and, and looking at this. I mean, maybe 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 people don't need to have that level of understanding. Do you know what I mean? No, like, maybe not. To, to, to yeah. do it. But, like, for me, that was important to understand what it was I was actually selling. I think that's like, for me, that's fundamental. And, and and as I gathered an understanding of what I was selling, I didn't like it. Now, I follow some really interesting people on Twitter who talk about NFTs and Web3. Yep. Web3 being this kind of idea of a decentralized utopian world mm-hmm. um, where people have their own sovereignty and control yeah, and the large corporations don't control everything well good luck yeah with that. You, you, you you've got more privacy and everything like that and i think like i i like that like that does appeal to me yeah i, I don't i'm not like i'm not a libertarian i don't think like i believe in democracy and i don't yeah, think yeah. we i used to be a cop do you know what i mean like <laughs> there are, I, I think we i think when society breaks down like I've seen it, like during the riot, there were some riots in London when I was working, and for a brief moment, society broke down, and people don't want that. Whether they think they do, they definitely don't. Um, so I think some level of centralization is important. But these people talk about Web three, and it's all linked to like these tokens and NFTs, and I just don't. What I don't understand with if if people start to get into that idea. They just need to look at Bitcoin because that that that's the answer for all the things they're talking about. Yeah. Um. So, 
I think if you're into NFTs because you think it's this free like future with that's decentralized and a high level of freedom, I think all you need to do is switch your thinking away from NFTs into Bitcoin. And that's what happened with me in the course of this investigation. Never, ever expected it to do that. I never, ever expected... All these things I've learned are almost counterintuitive. Like this, the sort of conclusions I've come to around the environment and Bitcoin and it's all counterintuitive. So I think if people are into NFTs because they like the idea of empowering people and uh, this level of freedom that it provides, this idea of decentralization where you have more privacy and control over your own life, I think all you need to do is start looking at Bitcoin in more detail. And, yeah. just, and, and Bitcoin was the foundation for all of this. There's no Ethereum and NFTs don't exist if Bitcoin hadn't come first. So I think if you if you really want to understand what you're doing when you're selling your NFTs, I think foundational knowledge of Bitcoin is where you should look, and then you may change you may change your outlook. Certainly, what happened to me, um, and it is what ultimately has turned me off NFTs. But, but yeah. I think we've done that to death, haven't we? So. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, we've been going for a little while now, so uh, might uh, think about wrapping up. I've got yeah, one sure, yeah. last and very important question. Do you like pineapple on pizza? I would never order <laughs> pineapple on a pizza, but my daughter likes ham and pineapple pizza. Fair enough. And, and if there's one piece left over... I'll eat it without taking the pineapple off. <laughs> but I would never dream of ordering a pizza with pineapple. pineapple a right? pineapple pizza, yeah. <laughs> so I hope I, I hope I hope that I hope I've hedged enough there, depending on what your <laughs> what your what your belief about that is. Oh, I, I, I'm I'm much the same. I wouldn't order one, but if it, if it yeah. was there and there was no other pizza, I'd, I'd eat it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's fascinating hearing what people say to to that. Uh, question and uh, one, uh, I guess one thing I haven't done yet is I haven't done the numbers as to which which photographers do and don't like it and what what the percentage is. <laughs> That'd be interesting to correlate, wouldn't it? Like yeah. <laughs> one day, there's a, there's a PhD in there somewhere for someone. <laughs> yeah. Does does does, pine, does pineapple go with anything else other than ham though? Um, I've never. I don't think I've seen pineapple. Not bad with rum. <laughs> on a pizza. <laughs> not on a pizza. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today, Adam. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, and I hope you've enjoyed the the, the chat. Um, and it's really interesting to hear some of your thoughts about uh, you know some of the things we've talked about. Where can people find your work? Probably at the moment the best place to get a feel for what I'm doing is obviously on YouTube. So it's First Man Photography on YouTube, probably the first place to go. Catch me on Twitter as well. I'm, I've become much more active on Twitter recently and sharing a lot of the ideas that we've discussed today, as well as some pretty pictures now and again. Uh, so I'm at Adam Carnach on Twitter, or you can probably just search First Man Photography as well. It'll come up as well, I think the little blue icon with a camera tripod and then yeah head over to firstmanphotography.com which is my website and you can pick up my book there if you wanted to and that ships all around the world and sort of covers uh 
Uh, that's sort of me sharing some of the stories from when I was in the police. Some fairly harrowing stories from the streets of London. Plus some funny ones. Plus some kind of heartwarming ones as well. So it's And then it's about how that built up a philosophy for life that I then transitioned into what I do as a photographer as well. And that's the... It's a photo book, but there's... I, I didn't want it. That's the photo. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want it to be. A lot of landscape photography books are like come with stories about how they captured the image, and I've done all. I've done all that on YouTube, and there's QR codes at the back of the book that sort of link you to the YouTube videos where the particular image was captured. But I wanted the story to be something different that kind of gives you a feel for where these images come from. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, got it. Uh, philosophically, rather than technically. So yeah that that's over on my website and then yeah you can there's other stuff on there as well i want i don't feel the need to kind of promote everything i'm doing but that's that's me no fair enough fair enough all right well thanks again mate it's uh it's been great yeah i really appreciate your uh really your time thanks for having me on cheers no worries thanks again for listening to landscape photography world i hope you've enjoyed the show and keep listening because i'm going to be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes you can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com also on instagram twitter facebook and youtube i'm grant swinburne hope to see you out shooting soon mm-hmm.